I think too, though, that we might put too much emphasis on, and I know we do this in the design world for sure, but, but in general with all of our AI is getting people to an emotion rather than understanding all the emotions that are happening along the way. So instead of thinking of emotion as a destination, thinking of emotion as um, more of a signal of what's what's happening, what you need to pay attention to, maybe even what you value. Welcome to Digital Mindfulness. I'm your host, Lawrence Ampofo. Joining me today is the entrepreneur, author and researcher, Pamela Pavlishek. In this episode, Pamela talks to us about her work with emotionally intelligent machines and artificial intelligence, and also how they have the potential to positively impact society with more humane digital experiences. But before we begin, welcome to Digital Mindfulness, where we bring you the best teachers and thought leaders from around the world to discuss how human-focused digitized experiences can help shape a better future for humanity. If you're new to our show, then the best place to find out much more about us is to visit digitalmindfulness.net, where you'll find a collection of some required listening shows where we discuss everything from digital wellness to persuasive technologies, behavior design, and much, much more. Okay, so enjoy the show with Pamela Pavlishak. Hi there, Pamela. Thanks so much for being on Digital Mindfulness today. I'm really thrilled to be able to talk to you about your work and this fascinating area of emotionally intelligent machines. So welcome to the show. Thanks, Florence. I'm excited to be here. So Pamela, tell us a little bit about yourself and particularly your journey to be working in this space of the intersection of technology with human society. Well... I didn't take a direct path. <laughs> I don't know how many people did. Um, I didn't even start out in tech. I was studying, I was cultural studies and humanities. And I then late 90s got really fascinated with tech. And for some crazy reason, I thought, oh, there's no way anyone will ever make money off the internet. It's all about like art. And <laughs> so I just, so that's how I got into it. And then gradually became, um, established a research company and tried to understand how people were using technology. Then a few years ago, it sort, I sort of had this realization because everyone I would talk to, I'd say, oh yeah, I work in tech. And instead of saying, oh, cool, that's awesome. They would say, oh yeah, it's really stressing me out or letting me down or, you know, making me physically ill in some (laughs) cases. And I thought to myself, well, what am I doing? I am, you know, I thought I was making people's lives better, but I don't think I am. And so I had kind of this, you know, moment where I thought, well, do I stay in tech and try to understand this or, do I just, you know, open a bakery or something like that? So I guess I decided to stay in and start researching and understanding our emotional relationship with technology. Mm. And that's kind of where I'm at still today. The whole issue of linking emotions to machines and software, this is something that, um, 
although it's incredibly interesting, it's really, really newsworthy now and something that is absolutely within the public consciousness. And one of the reasons this is the case is because of the psychological and emotional impact that our digital experiences can have on us. But I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit as to why is the emotional link with our digital experiences? Why is that so important to society at the moment? Yeah, I think that it comes from a bunch of different factors. I think that a lot of people in the industry are realizing what happened in the last election cycle in the U.S. And that's made a lot of people kind of wake up and think about, well, what what is it that we're trying to achieve with technology? I think there's been study of the impact on technology and well-being and those relationships. It's it's not all bad, though. That's that's the thing. So I think mm-hmm. that we easily get pulled into this narrative that technology is has this negative impact which is real there there are negative impacts but it's easy to kind of focus in on that more than um, thinking about well what can we do that that's positive that can make it better and so I think that's what's kind of going on right now is we're seeing that struggle play out and a lot of the language that we even use about talking about the struggle we talk about um, a crisis of attention Mm. or distraction and I think in a way we're talking about emotional well-being more than anything else even though we're not saying the words emotion (laughs) or emotional impact that's what's what's underneath all of that is that not only are we paying attention to the wrong things, but where it's making us feel anxious and making us feel um, these, these kind of uh, stressful feelings that give us signals like, yeah, this is, this is not the way we want things to go. So um, in, in a lot of discussions that I've had with, with people, with experts, um, there are some people who would say that actually, Machines don't make us feel anything, that the digital environment doesn't make us feel anything, that the anxiety or, inst- or not, that's the wrong word, that the anxiety or the, um, the ill feelings that people feel, this, these are things that were there already. So particularly perhaps with the case of children um, or teenagers, that their bodies are going through such change anyway, that this is what, that this is what they would have felt anyway. What would you say to that? Do you think it's a kind of that technological determinism, as it were, or rather <laughs> is it the other way around? I, I mean, I'm kind of a pragmatist, so I think that there's some truth to that. Teenagers through, you know, the 50s when teenagers were invented, I think, <laughs> because <laughs> people, people didn't really have teenage years before then, so to speak, um, until now go through a lot of the same issues. I mean, they're very focused on their peers. They're figuring out their identity in a way that we do through our whole lives, but it's really intense when you're a teenager. Friendships are really important. You're stepping away from your parents. There's all kinds of stuff going on when you're a teenager that um, has is not necessarily caused by technology, but technology is tangled up in it. I think that's the frustration I have with a lot of the conversations right now. It's sort of, we still have this approach that, well, there's one school of thought that says, okay, technology is neutral and it's just kind of the playing field for all of 
this stuff that would have happened anyway. And then there's another field of thought that says, well, technology is having a negative impact, so we need to take time off from technology to restore our balance. I guess I'm going to say there's a third way that we're like completely tangled up in technology. Our, the way we think, the way we feel, we're designing technology and technology designs us. It's mm-hmm. not a relationship that can be separated out so that technology is neutral or that we can step away from technology. Even when we're not using technology, our reality is framed by it in a lot of ways. So let's say, Lawrence, you and I decide we're going to go for a stroll in the woods near my house. We can't Mm -hmm. do that right now because you're in London and I'm in New York, but we could someday (laughs) do that. We might be on our stroll. We might say, yeah, we're not going to take our phones with us. But we still might think, wow, wouldn't it be cool to Instagram this later? Or look at that vista. That, I'm going to, you know, I think about framing it because I think about photographing things all the time. Or maybe I think about how I'm going to post about this later. Or um, it's simply, um, I want to look at it on a map later and see where I am. And I wouldn't have had that capability. So all of these things that we feel like we're getting away, there is no way, I guess, is what I think. And so we have to kind of come to terms with that and figure out how we're going to co-evolve in a way with technology that is that supports humans and doesn't, you know, mechanize us, I guess. So I guess then talking about this now, um, this would, this whole idea of the kind of the co-evolution of technology and human society or humanity these are the things that will preoccupy you most with change sciences so i'm wondering if you can just talk about what change sciences is exactly and why it's so important yeah well so i founded the company quite a while ago and it's evolved over the years but the focus has always been understanding how people engage with technology Mm. and how to make that more meaningful, more purposeful, more emotionally fulfilling. I think when, you know, we all started on this journey with technology, say 15, 20 years ago, for some of us, definitely for me, that meant being more productive, being more efficient, making things easy. I think what's happened, at least in terms of the work I've been doing in the past, say it, especially five years, is moving away from that and saying, well, you know, that doesn't always play to our, the better angels of our nature, <laughs> that instead we need to be looking at other factors that are involved in our use of technology. And so we've been looking at emotional impact and what kind of purpose, values, all that kind of engagement. And we've been looking a lot to models of well-being. So, um, a lot of communities and countries, and even globally now, there are indexes that look at well-being as sort of a complex system of factors. It's not just, do you feel happy right now? But, you know, what? how does your happiness impact other people? What contributes to people's happiness? Um, you know, if you look at countries, it's education, it's, um, it's healthcare, it's environment, and we're trying to think bigger, bigger picture when we're um, working with clients to 
to bring them to sort of that realization like, oh, you know, technology doesn't exist in a vacuum. And yes, it exists to uh, turn a profit in a lot of cases, but that has to be balanced with these other aspects that will build kind of a, a longer term relationship. Mm. So, um, so one of the things we were talking about um, before we came on air was this whole idea of in- emotionally intelligent machines. Mm. And you just, re- you kind of referenced it very briefly um, a little while ago, but the whole idea of meaningful tech as well. Um, and of course, this is, this is really interesting to me because this is what the very biggest technology companies in the world are talking about now. How do we create these meaningful experiences and the ripple effects for everyone are going to be profound but what in your mind and particularly from the research that you've conducted what are meaningful digital experiences well i think that it's not so different from experiences that we have overall i think there's probably three big factors that meaningful experiences sort of gravitate around. One is, does it challenge you? Is it challenge your capabilities, your perspective, your your view of the world? So challenging would be one. A second one would be creative. Does it allow you to creatively engage? And I don't mean, you know, making great artworks or any, by any means, but being able to feel like you have agency you're contributing, you're participating in a way that um, stretches you a little bit. And then the third way I think is community and connection, is feeling that um, that kind of sense of belonging, that sense of shared purpose. So those are really the three big patterns that run throughout any meaningful experience that I've seen in my own research, but I think that's a general consensus if you look at, you know, social psychology now and, and the study of, you know, the positive psychology or perspective psychology looks at those same kind of issues. That's really fascinating because everything you've just described sounds a lot like flow. The psychological theory from Csikszentmihalyi Um, which talks about all of these things that you just mentioned, that to do an activity where it is slightly challenging, where you do have to reach a little bit, but something that completely envelops you. This sounds a lot like a flow state to me. And, And the reason why I'm going on and on about this might well be because I'm in flow just now, but it seems to me that the real issue that we're talking about here, and especially with meaningful digital experiences, is is attention, basically. And that what we need to do, or rather what is being encouraged now by digital service providers, is that we cultivate a new type of attention. And that type of attention that we do um, cultivate when we're in a flow state when we are, for example, connecting with friends and family, when we are um, uninterrupted by any outside stimuli, that type of attention, particularly in an attention economy, where, um, our, again, our focused attention is commoditized and sold, um, that type of attention is really very important, but it's something that that's, that's ours, uniquely human. Um, I think so. I think attention is definitely, I mean, that's what makes up your life, right? What you pay attention to is, adds up to 
your life in the end. And I think if you look at, say, the latest research in psychology, I mean, there's, there's three threads, right? Like historically, psychology has looked at, well, you know, Freud or Jung or something like that. That would be your past. <laughs> your past shapes, you know, future you. I think a lot of psychology now around mindfulness, um, around attention, focuses on sort of how you pay attention to the present mm. is really important. I think there's a fair amount of new thinking in psychology that's how we conceive of the future shapes our our lives. So there's three different ways I think of paying attention that really factor into that. I'm I'm interested most in the future way because I think that's been the least explored. And I think right now that's something we're confronting in a big way. Uh, so I think for instance, all the discussions about future of work and the future of artificial intelligence taking over human tasks. I think part of what's going on there is that it's almost a mental health crisis in the making because people are feeling not just like they're going to lose their jobs, but they're going to lose their purpose and they're going to lose their agency in their lives. And, and I think that what's going on as part of it is we have a hard time imagining our future selves. We know we make mistakes imagining our future selves. If you look at, say, like Dan Gilbert and effective forecasting, um, he makes the point that, you know, we, are, we mistakenly think we're finished when we're works in progress. And there's been tons of interesting research lately about how, you know, we, if we have a better understanding of what our life looks like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, we'll make better decisions now for that future self. Um, so I think attention, we tend to think of attention as just like paying attention to, to now and being mm -hmm. in the present moment. But I think it might actually be all three of those things, past, present, and future, that, that are, are part of this attention crisis that's happening right now. Okay. I'm just thinking though then, um, in that case, do emotionally intelligent machines or emotionally intelligent digital experiences, do they help, do they rather support people in um, alleviating these crises, as it were? Like, so do they help yeah. give context to past, present, future? I don't know. I'm conflicted on this because I do think that, so emotionally intelligent machines means a lot of different things. There's, to some people, it means robots with human personalities that are, um, you know, that can sense emotions or even kind of have some type of emotion, Westworld style, or yeah. hopefully kinder. Um, <laughs> and then, um, you know, to other people, it means the ability of technology to help us understand our own emotions and regulate those emotions and be able to express them. I mean, that's what a lot of effective computing has come out of, that tradition of treating um, people on the autism spectrum, people with PTSD, to recognize their emotions and then be able to understand or signal those emotions to other people around them. Um, I, I think there's probably value in, in both of those areas of exploration. I think, too, though, that we might 
put too much emphasis on, and I know we do this in the design world for sure, but, but in general with all of our AI is getting people to an emotion rather than understanding all the emotions that are happening along the way. So instead of thinking of emotion as a destination, thinking of emotion as um, more of a signal of what's what's happening, what you need to pay attention to, maybe even what you value in the long term. So I think, you know, I'm not going to say we never want to get people to a better place. That's that's therapy, you know, like <laughs> that's, and maybe, you know, and, and therapy with chatbots and technology, that's a valid thing. And that helps a lot of people. Um, but I think we have to be really cautious when we talk about commercial ventures that are trying to get people to their happy place <laughs> to, to buy things or to spend more time or to, put them in a direction that they might not not be in and that's that's like the the tension in you know emotionally intelligent machines right now is that like it, it it could really be great and helpful and help us become more emotionally intelligent and feel different emotions and new flavors of emotions it could also kind of reduce all that to just the five that are detected <laughs> by the machines, you know, and drive us toward one or two of those that, mm. you know, we know are going to have the effect that we want. And so I think that's, that's, I don't have an easy answer to that. I don't think anyone <clears throat> does at this point, but that's, those are the big questions. I was really fascinated. I remember when looking through your work at just some of the applications for intelligent or emotionally intelligent machines. And it really just blew my mind, you know, how you can use emotionally intelligent machines to help bridge the gap between what we intend to do and what our actions ultimately are. Very similar to the kinds of work that are happening at Dopamine Labs with um, with Ramsey Brown. And these have extraordinary applications for areas like health for example if we can be nudged in the in the direction through our machines to um, make more healthful choices for example that benefit um, our health in the long term this is incredibly important but also these same applications for emotionally intelligent machines are being used for other things like Black Friday and, you know, enabling us to buy more things and be more effective in the economy. I did, you know, I mean, we have to keep in mind that advertising and marketing already does try to play with our emotions and understands emotions and drives us to an emotional place. But this takes it to a much more intimate level because yeah. when you're actually sensing people's emotions and then being able to aggregate all those together and say, well, on average, you know, most people respond to this stimulus in this particular way. And then when they feel that way, they do this or they buy this. Um, that That's just not where I want to see technology go. I think that's not where most, most people want to see it go. Instead, we I think most people would say, yeah, we want it to be something that supports humans, brings out the best in humans, that um, brings us to a greater understanding of our own emotionally intelligent, own emotional intelligence. Because I think that, 
I don't know. We have this kind of assumption. I, I feel like I read about this a lot that, okay, the age of AI is coming and they're taking our jobs and, you know, but the place for humans is empathy and emotions. But the fact is, a lot of us humans aren't very good at that stuff as it is, you know, so it's a little presumptuous to think like, oh, first of all, the robots will never get that. Second of all, that humans are intrinsically good at that stuff because, I mean, clearly to look around (laughs) at the world today and you'll realize that we're not. I think that there's a lot that we can teach each other and co-evolve. Like I I teach a a class on... um, speculative design where we look at, you know, making emotional machines. That's one of the things that we're, we're trying out together. And so one of the things is we try out some of the emotion sensing AI for facial recognition and voice recognition. The truth is that AI picks up on stuff that we humans just don't. But we humans understand a lot of things that the AI doesn't. We get a lot of the context. We have a whole repertoire that we can draw on that's culturally informed. Um, I, I don't think one necessarily is better than the other. I think mm. we're going to learn from the AI and the AI is going to learn from us. And it's going to be this kind of symbiotic <clears throat> relationship as weird as that may be, you know, and... <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's kind of our destiny at this point, and we should just maybe accept it and see what we can do with that. <laughs> Everything that we're speaking about here, Pamela, about the the fears that people might have of emotionally intelligent machines, it really leads me to think about how about the outsourcing of memory and all of the fears that that elicited. Um, and it does make me think about where our minds stop and where machines actually begin, particularly as, for example, we don't now have to remember um, phone numbers. We don't have to remember these little things. And even people are thinking we don't need to remember facts. We can just go to Google and we can search for them. So I'm wondering if you think that even though it's become possible to an extent to outsource our memories, some of our some of our memories, the ability to remember certain things like phone numbers. Do you think with the onset of emotionally intelligent machines that will be outsourcing our emotions as well? I hope not. But <laughs> conceivably, you know, that could happen. It's already happening a little bit. Like yeah. think about um LinkedIn's a really good example, right? Because you're sending a message to somebody and it prompts you with a lot of automated choices to respond, you know, like thumbs up or yeah, catch you later, whatever. I don't even know what they are. I try not to use them, but it's tempting. And Gmail does the same. And, you know, when we're texting each other, our predictive text suggests emojis for us. It suggests text. And it's outsourcing a little bit of that intimacy, that we, um, that creativity, <laughs> that um, community, that those things that give us meaning are being then outsourced. And I think that's what we have to be careful of. And it's a tricky balance. I know a lot of people say like, well, let the machines do what the machines are good at and the people do what the people are good at. But what are those things? They're all mixed up together now you know (laughs) so and some of the things that machines are potentially good at can give people meaning so think of um i'll use myself as an example i i don't know why but i love raking leaves 
and I love stacking wood and it's just, you know, it's outdoors, it's meditative, it's fun because the kids will come and mess up all my leaves and stuff like that. And I'm sure a robot could do better at that, you know, obviously. And, and I mean, other humans can do better than I can at that too, let's face it. But it's like, do we get rid of that or not? I don't know. These are tricky questions. So I'm always suspicious when people are so certain, like, yes, these are the robot things and these are the people things and robots are good at this and people are good at this. And I think, well, it's pretty mucked up. I mean, we've already been kind of, you know, rearranged by technology throughout the years, right? Like we Mm -hmm. can't, we couldn't travel. Now we can because of cars and airplanes. Um, Radio has messed us up. I mean, you know, long ago, it was novels that were, were messing with women's brains in particular back in the 19th Mm -hmm. century. Like any technology is sort of um, changing us. And I don't, I don't think there's a way to kind of tease that out. So I hope we don't outsource some of those things. But then on the other hand, I think to myself, well, maybe we'll develop different conceptions of what, of what that, that means, what happiness Mm. is. There's not like one truth to it. So Pamela, we've been talking at a really high level about um, emotionally intelligent machines and artificial intelligence, um, co-evolution of machines with society, etc. But I wonder if you can give us um, just a couple of examples of really excellent um, emotionally intelligent design and just the impact that that's having on society. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think where we're seeing the most interesting work is on the psychology and healthcare front. So apps that are therapist chatbots, for instance, fill a real gap. There's not enough people um, getting access to therapy or just not comfortable talking face-to-face with somebody. That fills a need. Even with chatbots being as limited as they are right now, I think that's an area to watch that I think is going to see positive growth. I think um, a few of the apps I've seen recently, uh, like in hackathons and and those kind of contexts, I don't know if they're developed out as apps, is looking at um, Alzheimer's and trying to develop ways where people, to help people with Alzheimer's and their families reconstruct memories, find meaningful ways to communicate with each other, um, sort of keep um, in the game, so to speak. And I think that holds a lot of promise. On the other hand, I think what gets a lot of attention is sort of the humanized robots um, that maybe show a feeling or recognize feelings or things like that. I, I I don't think we're going to stop people from making robots in human images, but I think that's in a way it's, I don't know if it's a detractor from well-being, but it's certainly a distraction in a lot of cases because I I sometimes think you don't really need um, all your technology to be embodied in a personality. And that has a lot of limitations to it. And I don't know, when I'm working with clients, I always think about the scale, like what is, are you, is this technology that's something that is in the background? Is it something that's on your body that you've kind of fused with? Is it something in between where it's mediating your relationship with somebody or your relationship with the world? 
once you start thinking about those relationships, then you can really think about, well, does this need its own personality, you know, like um, a Siri or something like that? Or does it, can it just be, you know, be (laughs) as is? (laughs) So, so Pamela, in this age of um, emotionally intelligent machines, what would you say then are the most important human qualities and how do we cultivate those? Good question, Lawrence. I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) (laughs) I think that for everyone, I think that we can use this as an opportunity to cultivate our own emotional intelligence, to develop greater empathy and compassion for each other, to understand our own emotions. Let's use these new ways of being to understand those emotions better. I think on the side of technology's makers, designers, and developers, the one value I'd like to see carry forward and for the next, say, five years is humility. I really feel like the past decade, we've been moving really fast, disrupting everything with this kind of short-term view that and, and this kind of hubris that we can make the world better with technology, you know, and the future is synonymous with technology. I think I'd like to see people in tech sort of step back from that and say, well, let, let's just be humble for a little bit. And let's just see like how we can, how what we're making fits in with the rest of the world and the way what's great about human beings and what's great about society and what we need to do to, to move forward together and create, you know, a world that, that we want to live in that isn't just optimized for our convenience and productivity. So Pamela, where can people find out more about you and connect with you and just learn more about your work? Um, The best way is probably either at changesciences.com or on Twitter. My handle's Pam in the Lab, since it's impossible to spell my last name. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And hopefully people reach out. I'd love to chat. And it was such a pleasure chatting with you today too, Lawrence. Oh, fantastic. Thanks so much for being a part of the show. It's been a pleasure having you on.